So we are continuing our walk through this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. A Greek city in the Roman Empire. And we are calling this series The Way of Love. Because that is Paul's biggest concern in this letter. There is a way of of self-love. And then there is a way of, of love that the gospel gives us. And Paul looks at all of the problems that this young church is facing and creating. And there are many, as we're about to find out. And he sees the sin beneath the sin. The sin beneath the sin is a way of self-love. And so Paul is at pains to tell us that it's the cross of Christ that opens up to us a new way. That is not enslaved to self-love and self-regard and self-sufficiency but is freed up to love God like we were meant to and to love others like we were created to. It's what one pastor calls the gift of of self-forgetfulness. The gospel is a gift that creates in us a self-forgetfulness so that our, our eyes are attuned to the beauty of God and we're not like narcissists looking at ourselves all of the time. And we're not constantly enslaved to our own desires all the time. What we want, what we think is right. Instead, we're opened up to a new way of freedom, the way of love. Last week, we saw that the way of love creates a community that is humbled by its own sin and therefore non-judgmental of the sin outside of its own house. In other words, the church is an enactment, a constant enactment of Jesus' parable about the speck in our eye. I'm sorry, the plank in our eye versus the speck in our neighbor's eye. Remember, we learned last week that we are a missional family. We're not just a family. We're not just on mission. We're a missional family. Family, But this young church is not being a missional family over and over again in multitude ways. In our case this morning, believers are taking other believers. And remember, this is like under 100 people church. A church about our size. Okay? And so imagine this. Church members within our community, within our ranks, taking each other to court. For what Paul calls trivial grievances. So this isn't major stuff. This is, according to Paul, trivial grievances. And Paul Paul tells us this morning, he will tell us that this is not the way of love. Why? Well, let's take a look at the text, starting in verse 1 of chapter 6. I'll read it. You can follow along. We'll pray and we'll dig in to see what God has for us. So this is God's word. When one of you has a grievance against one another... Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? 
So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough? Remember, uh, Paul's constantly talking about wisdom and how this Corinthian congregation really prided themselves on being wise. And so Paul's kind of taking a jab here. He's saying, isn't there someone wise enough among you to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers and sisters. Okay, this is God's word. Lord, would the words of my mouth and would the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you? And we need you to reveal yourself in this word. And so Spirit, open our eyes, open our hearts to see Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So recently my family spent two days in northeast Ohio birding with thousands of others around the world. Yes, I said around the world. And yes, I said birding. (laughs) That means looking at birds. For the record, Jesus says in Matthew 6, look at the birds. So we're obeying the Lord Jesus. I don't know if you knew this, but the first two weeks of May in Northeast Ohio is called the best two weeks of birding in all of America. And this is because the migrating birds from the Caribbean and from South America, they all are heading north and they get tired and hungry right around Toledo. Isn't that hilarious? They look at Lake Erie and they say, let's pull off. We need to rest up. And so they're tired and they're hungry and they just hang out at eye level. It's really eerie. They're almost sedated. They don't fly away when you come up to them. And so, I'm not kidding. People from all over the world come. And it's like like celebrity paparazzi, except it's like a warbler. (laughs) It's pretty awesome. On our first day there, we walked around a marsh uh, near the coast of Lake Erie with two guides. Uh, They are world experts on these tree birds called warblers. They literally wrote the book. And what was amazing is that that's, that's literally their names right there. They wrote the book. And what is amazing, they not only could recognize every single bird call with their ears, they could replicate them with their mouth. It was hilarious. We were standing under a big tent, and the, it was windy that day. And so all of, the, um, all of the ropes that were holding the tent down in the wind were creating a squeaking noise. And both of them thought they heard a red-breasted grosbeak. It was the tent. That's how in tune they were with hearing these sounds. And so what I did is I left inspired, you know, and I know there's one among us here that is also inspired to do this. I know who you are. I left inspired to know the unique calls of at least the birds in my neighborhood. And so I downloaded an app called LarkWire that's helping me. Uh, Because I didn't know if you know this, this was actually new to me. Each bird, they don't just sing some nondescript song, whatever they're vibing on that current day. They actually have a unique call. Each bird, each family bird has a unique call, except one. Did you know this? The northern mockingbird. 
Okay, this bird doesn't have a unique call. Instead, it mimics over a hundred other calls, even the sounds of cars. And as we walk through 1 Corinthians, I'm struck about how similar the church can be to this northern mockingbird. It's really an amazing image if you think about it. The community of Jesus, Paul is telling us, has a unique call. We are a family. And we have a unique call. But the problem that Paul is pointing out over and over again is that we mimic other human communities. Sometimes that's, you know, human communities are great. But it's not the unique call of the family or the community that is around Jesus. And I think we mimic other human communities for various reasons. And we can come up with our own. I think we do it. We think this is how we will survive as a church. There's a subtitle to a book that was on the shelf that said why Christianity must change in order to survive or or how we must change to not die. This is an impulse where we're thinking, if we don't change, if we don't mimic other human communities that seem to be flourishing, then we are somehow dying. We are somehow off. And so we start mimicking, like the Northern Mockingbird, other human communities. Perhaps we start mimicking other communities because we want acceptance deep down, and we don't trust the acceptance that we have in God. Well, whatever the root cause, the community of Jesus should have the most distinct call of all communities. And instead, we sound like others. And last week, we learned about a study that confirms we have lost our unique call. In this study, it says our team discovered that 84% of young non-Christians say they know a Christian personally, yet... Only 15% say the lifestyle of those believers are noticeably different in a good way. We've lost our unique call. But I love how this letter is at pains to recover this unique cross-centered call. Uh, one, uh, One church that I love, they have this mission statement that goes like this. It says, we exist to make Jesus non ignorable in our city. It's a great mission for a church. It's a great mission. And this is exactly the point of Paul's letter. Paul is saying to them, and he's saying to us this morning, he's saying, basically, you are a people of the cross. No one else is. Only you. And so you're going to look distinctively different. You'll look distinctively foolish in the eyes of the world. You are a people of the cross. Remember, in those days, the cross was shame. It was social shame. In those days, the cross wasn't elevated like it is in our culture. The cross in those days was losing in the face of the Roman Empire. And Paul's saying, you, are, you will look distinctively foolish and distinctively weak by the world's standards. But listen, that's okay because Jesus is king and you are his community. And in fact, when you live out your faith in the risen Jesus, you will receive and you will demonstrate his power. We have a unique call that comes from the depths of God himself. We don't mimic other human communities. 
And our unique call will play out in every area of our life. And in 1 Corinthians, you will see this unique call playing out in every area of our life. But this morning, Paul is going to tell us how the community of Jesus should use power and advantage in a way that looks different than any other human community. We see from verse 1 in chapter 6, if you take your eyes uh, down to the text, that believers were taking other believers to court in order to settle grievances and trivial cases, to use Paul's language. And on the surface, this doesn't seem like a big deal. Maybe we walk away from this text saying, okay, uh, don't be litigious. You know, there are many sermons on this text that would just simply settle with that application. Don't be litigious, especially Christians. Come on. Figure it out amongst yourselves. Don't be litigious. Or maybe this could be an ethical treatment on the ethics of taking another Christian to court and whether it's ever okay to do that. But my friends, something deeper is going on in this text because in those days, this is what we have to understand, the Roman criminal law system was was fine. But the civil law system was not okay. We get a hint of that in this text when Paul says, you are defrauding others. Why not rather be defrauded yourself? Why would he use that word defraud? Well, the civil court system in that day was fraudulent. It was well known that those with money and those with influence and those with power would always win a civil court case. Because judges and juries expected payment for favorable outcomes. And so when a believer takes another believer to to civil court for trivial matters, and Paul is saying you're defrauding them, we have to look beneath the surface and see that what is going on is not simply an ethical treatment on Christians taking other Christians to court. What's actually going on here is we have believers with power exploiting believers without. It's an exploitation that's happening. It's a defrauding that's happening. They're using their social and economic advantage to exploit vulnerable brothers and sisters in their own community. And Paul is outraged. He says, I say this to your shame. He's mad. Remember Jesus. Jesus reserved his vitriol on those who abused their influence. He made braided whips for those who abused their influence. Jesus said things like, there would be better for a millstone to be tied around your neck than you abuse your influence as an adult towards children. Jesus, meek and mild, used the harshest language towards those who would exploit the vulnerable. And so Paul is just being Jesus-y in this text. And too often I think the church is a warm bath for abusers who use their power, whatever power they think they have, for coercive control. And so Paul sounds a lot like Jesus in this passage. He says, shame on you in verse 5. And he uses biting sarcasm in the same verse. He says, you're so wise... Figure out this case amongst yourselves. How dare you go to a place that is stacked in your favor? Jesus was harsh 
towards abusers. He was tender toward the abused. So this is a challenge for us all, I think, to consider um, all the ways that we would leverage our advantages for gain. Paul says when we do this, we have already lost. Verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you all. No matter what we think we've gained, it's a loss. So we have a unique call as a church. From this text, it it, it appears to me that this unique call that we have is to yield advantage for the sake of the vulnerable. And not just yield advantage, but to wield advantage for the sake of the vulnerable. Human communities so naturally leverage their advantages for their own gain. Not so with the community of Jesus. So our unique calling is we yield our advantage. Paul tells us in Philippians that we are to have the same mind as Jesus who did not consider equality with God something to grasp, which is another way of saying he did not leverage his divine privileges in order to exploit the vulnerable. No, instead he leveraged his divine privileges. He yields them so that he could serve the vulnerable. You see, he became a slave and served us who were in our sin. So that we would, in God's economy, have all that Jesus offers. And so we receive this yielding from Jesus. And what that means is that we as a church now yield our advantages for the sake of the vulnerable. And we see this at work in this passage. Paul refers to us as saints in verse 1. Brothers and sisters together in verse 6 and in verse 8. In Christ, he's saying over and over again, using familial language, Paul is, he's saying we are equal. We're equally bankrupt and we're equally saved by grace. And so there's no pecking order. And in the the ancient Roman Empire, there was a pecking order, you see. Like there were people who had advantages and they would use them. There were patrons and there were clients. And patrons could do really whatever they wanted. Paul is saying, no, you are in Christ. You see, your brothers and your sisters. How dare you use that to leverage for your own gain? Instead, there is no advantage. And so whatever earthly advantage you have, yield it. Paul says, wouldn't you rather be defrauded? That's a yielding of your advantages. So we are in Christ. But the other thing that Paul is concerned about is the reality that we are before others. Not only are we in Christ as a community, we're before others as a community. And Paul is concerned, really deeply concerned about our witness to the watching world. Paul is missional to his core. He's constantly thinking about sharing and spreading the good news of Jesus to everybody. And so when he sees Christians taking other Christians to court and leveraging their advantage in order to exploit the vulnerable, he's saying, how dare you do that when we are a gospel community around Jesus who yielded his advantages, who was defrauded so that we could gain all. How dare you do such a thing? It goes against our DNA. And you don't look like Jesus at all when you do this. Paul wants us to look and smell like Jesus. That's our unique call. It's such a rare call. It's like the cardinal outside my window. It's such a unique call. You can't miss it. It's so rare. 
to be a community that looks like Jesus, uh, to find people in society who don't leverage their advantage. This is just built into us, our sin nature, and then our communities just sort of tell us, yeah, this is okay. This is okay. Like, leverage yourself and get the gain. My son is learning about Titanic. Um, and I talked about how the ship was sinking. All the advantage folks were at the top of the ship and the disadvantage at the bottom. And that was ordinary and that was expected. And then when the ship started to sink, I talked to him about how, you know, they all got on the rafts at the top level. And I said, that is also humanly expected, isn't it? But imagine for a moment if those at the top ran to the bottom. That would be unique. That would be different. And that's what the church is called to be. Folks who run to the bottom. Who don't leverage their advantages for their own gain. But yield them. As Jesus did. I think what this means for us is that we need to acknowledge first the advantages we have, whatever they may be. Do an inventory. Author Jamar Tisby shares about an exercise that his friend Christina Edmondson does with her students at Calvin College. She says, say a space alien teleports into a classroom on a college campus. And this alien says, greetings, I am interested in studying life on your world and want to stay here a while. I want to enjoy my time here. So what features should I have to be successful on your planet? And then she opens up the the classroom discussion. And many students in her class offer honest answers. They say, well, maybe you should be a man. Maybe you should have a college education. They just go on and on and on. They list these things. And what it does is for the first time it rings true in the hearts of these students that they have, some of them, some socioeconomic Advantages, acknowledging them. So Jamar Tismi, he taught me that not, in his own story, he's taught me that not even half of white people say they have unique advantages in America. Less than half say they do. But 92%, and I'm quoting him, of black people say that white people have unique challenges. That's a disparity of perspective, which tells me that majority culture Christians have a lot of listening to do. So after acknowledging, we need to yield. Tisby writes, Christian community is where believers count others as better than themselves. In this context, social privilege loses its appeal. And the only true privilege comes from serving others. Our unique calling is to yield privilege. We have another unique call. It's we wield privilege. So we do more than just yield it. We actually wield it. Paul tells this small community that they have a huge privilege. And that privilege is there in Christ. And so he helps this community think forward. The big word here is eschatologically. Eschatology or eschaton means last. Eschatology means the study of last things. And so when I say that the people of God are eschatological people, what I'm saying is that these people are always oriented towards the end. We are in a story that is going somewhere. And the destination is certain. And Paul says, here is your privilege. You who are, who are sinners. You who have sinned. On judgment day. 
you will be so united and identified with the Lord Jesus that you will be taking part in that. And this harkens back to the days in Eden before the fall when we were called to be kings and queens, but we sinned in that place, remember? And, and, but Jesus comes, and He comes as the true judge, but also as the one judge, not for His sins, but ours. So that you and me will one day judge the angels with Him. That is an astonishing divine privilege. And Paul is pointing this out because he's saying, first of all, how ironic is it that you're taking each other to court over trivial matters when you yourselves are going to be judging angels? But also, he's saying, you have incredible privilege in Christ. Use that to bless others, especially the vulnerable in your church. Those who would be vulnerable to injustice in the Roman Empire. Remember, Paul was a victim to injustice in the Roman courts. He knows how it feels. And so we want to use whatever advantage, whatever we have to bless others. This is a positive view of power. The scriptures don't say that all power is bad. Jesus is all powerful. The question is, how did he use his power? He used his power to bless He wielded his power, his influence, his authority to bless, to serve. And all of us, with all of the divine privileges of Jesus being united to him, have a unique opportunity because we don't need anything from anybody. We don't need to exploit anybody anymore. We have everything we need in Jesus. So now we can use whatever advantages we have to bless others. Isn't that what catch court is? When a judge says, Look, I'm a judge. And I'm going to use this privilege, this authority that has been granted to me in order to bless the vulnerable. If you don't know what catch court is, talk to me, talk to my wife, and we'll catch you up. It's a beautiful depiction of using power in a way that blesses. This is a positive view of power. I like how Andy Crouch puts it. He says that Christians with power should be tugboats, not warships. Tugboats, not warships. Warships use their power to win and to destroy. <laughs> Tugboats are humble and they use their immense power to help others get to shore. I like how Alexander June writes We should reframe our perspectives and use privilege to acknowledge that we have it, not so much that we would feel guilt or shame, but to leverage it for good. To whom much is given, much will be required. So ask yourself this question. Where do you have advantages? And how might you use those to get your way? To get your way. You can think in terms of your relationships that you have, your marriage, your parenting, your job. Think about it. Where are ways that you have you have your way? You want to use it. You want to get to your way, your path. And now you're using whatever advantages you have to manipulate and to leverage the situation and to control the situation so that your preferred path ends up being exactly what happens. I would say this text is more than just an ethical treatment on Christians taking other Christians to court. It's a challenge to that attitude. It goes to the core. It goes to the core of who we are. We are a Jesus people. We lay down our preferences and our privileges in order to serve others.
And we are a church. And we are a church with a unique call to show Jesus, this Jesus, to the world. Jesus who had the most privilege of all. The most authority of all. Jesus himself didn't leverage it for his own gain. But he leveraged it for our salvation. And so let's yield and wield whatever we have given by God to do the same. Lord, we ask that this text would do its work in our hearts. That we would be a community of the cross. Lord, that we could settle disputes, settle disagreements, settle things that are going on in our community with grace and forgiveness. But Lord, would we heed this warning that if we are defrauding others, if we are taking advantage of of our position, then we don't look like you, Jesus. So would we, of all people, be ones who lay it down? Help us be listeners to the more vulnerable around us. Help us be submissive to the more vulnerable around us. Strip away a patronizing attitude from us. Or you tell us the materially poor are rich in faith. You have a whole entire way of looking at things, Lord, and we want your eyes. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.